Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Let's turn now in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 11. If you're using a church Bible, page 981 or large print 1165, and you should find a church Bible uh, in front of you or um, on the window ledge. Paul has expressed his concern for this church at Philippi that he loves uh, in chapter 1 and verse 27, whether I am with you or absent from you, I am concerned to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. And the section that he begins there, uh, I think fairly obviously, comes to an end in chapter 4 and verse 1, where he uses more or less the same language. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And up until this point, uh, he has been dealing with the threat to uh, them standing firm, threat that would come from within because of individual pride and disagreement. And um, he has spoken of the way in which, uh, as Will was saying earlier on, the Lord Jesus uh, took on our flesh and became a servant for our salvation, that the secret of our unity as a church family is humility, and the secret of that humility is to be found in Christ. And now uh, it looks as though he is uh, moving on to another issue, but within the same context. Perhaps it's unfortunate that the translators of the English Standard Version, which I love very much, have done the traditional thing and said, finally, in chapter 3, verse 1, which has been the source of many jokes about preachers uh, who say, finally, and then uh, much later on as Paul eventually does in chapter 4, verse 8, says, finally, again. Um, if, he, if he means finally, it's finally about what I'm talking about just now. Um, but perhaps he just means moreover, something like that. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As uh, we live through the years and even through the decades as Christians, I think one of the things we notice is that in the Christian church, just like everywhere else, there are passing fads and fashions. Uh, You need to be a Christian probably 10 years to see the end of whatever happens to be the current fad and fashion. And I think a fad and fashion that has probably, thankfully, disappeared from uh, church life is people um, entering your private space and saying, do you have a life text? Do you have a life text? Maybe that's very 60s or 70s, but certainly for some of us, there have been periods in our life when every Christian stranger you met seemed to want to know, do you have a life text? And in my darker moments, I used to think these, well, first of all, I used to think, well, no, I don't. And even if I did have, I wouldn't be telling you what it was. But there were some people so insistent, I used to think, if you bumped into the Apostle Paul, that would be the first question you would ask him too. Do you have a life text? And since I think Paul, somewhere in there, had a little sense of humor, I think he might quietly have said, you mean you've never read Philippians chapter 3? You've never read Philippians chapter 3? Because here at the heart of Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us his life text. All I care about, he says, is to know Christ. And as I'm sure most of you know, this chapter, Philippians 3, is certainly one of the great chapters in all of Paul's letters, one of the most personal, one of the most self-disclosing passages that he ever wrote. And interestingly, like so many great passages, we looked at another in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This passage occurs in the context of Paul seeking to solve a problem, a problem for the Christian church, a problem for the Christians in Philippi. 
He had written Philippians 2, 5 to 11 in order to deal with the problem of pride and self-centeredness and narcissism that can rear its ugly head in a church family and destroy the joy of its fellowship. And here he comes to something else that can destroy the joy and the unity of a church fellowship. Not the appearance of pride from within, but the invasion of false teaching from without. And you can tell by the language Paul uses here, he feels very, very strongly about this. He has given them the antidote for pride, which is humility in Christ. And now he wants to give them the antidote for a particular kind of false teaching that he believes will potentially destroy their fellowship. And he does it by way, obviously here, of a personal testimony. I think it's interesting to notice, both in the New Testament and beyond the New Testament, that the early Christians never seemed to think that persecution would destroy the church. It never crossed their mind to think persecution will destroy us. But it seems frequently to have crossed the Apostle Paul's mind that false teaching, when it emerges from within, almost certainly will destroy the church. And it looks as though in these verses, notice the language he uses here, it looks as though in these verses he has, he has set his sights on exposing the errors of people often referred to as the Judaizing party, who were at least around the fringes of the early Christian church. Many of the early Christians, although by no means all, had come from a Jewish background. And as Christians, they seem to, they seem to exist in a kind of spectrum, a spectrum that at its best was Jewish Christians who understood that Christ had fulfilled the law and set them free to serve Him joyfully without the burden of some of the regulations that distinguished God's people in the Old Testament, particularly the food laws, the observance of special days of which there was a multitude, and perhaps most particularly, the Jewish rite of circumcision. And as it were, at the most conservative end of these Jews who had been at least influenced by the gospel, was a group of people who seemed to dog Paul's steps almost everywhere he went, who insisted that Gentile Christians, if they were really going to be Christians, needed to add to their faith in Jesus Christ, in this context at least for the men, the Jewish rite of circumcision. And throughout Paul's letters, he, his basic conviction drawing from Christ is this, that if you add anything to Jesus Christ in teaching people how to be saved, you have actually detracted from Jesus Christ 
and destroyed salvation. His great conviction is that Jesus Christ has done everything that is needed for our salvation, and it is not therefore necessary to add to Jesus Christ. Add to Jesus Christ, and you will, Paul is convinced, actually end up destroying the gospel. And it's because he is concerned about the possibility of the destruction of the gospel, and just from the number of times he uses the language of joy and rejoicing, the inevitable destruction of their joy, because then there will be on their shoulders burdens that they do not need to carry. He speaks in language here that is uh, almost verging on violent And you'll notice the description he gives. He calls them dogs, which, as you know, was the the Jewish way of speaking about Gentiles. He says it's not Gentile believers who are dogs, it's you who are insisting on their circumcision who are dogs. And you insist that this is a good work, but actually you are evildoers. And you want them to cut off the foreskin of the male members of the church, but what you are really counseling is a mutilation of the gospel. And as he does in one of his earliest letters, perhaps his earliest letter to the Galatians, as you remember, he says, if even an angel of heaven came to tell you this, let him be anathema. He is so passionate for the absolute adequacy of Jesus Christ alone to be our Savior. And he says, this has been our experience. What is true of us? We worship by the Spirit. We have been set free from these old ordinances that pointed forwards to what the Holy Spirit would do. We glory in Christ Jesus, not in anything that we find in our own flesh. Indeed, we have no confidence in the flesh, that is, in what we can accomplish. All of our confidence is in Jesus Christ, who you remember had said in John 6, 63, the flesh will profit you nothing. Only what the Spirit does through me will bring you salvation. And then he backs all this up as though he heard a voice saying, what right do you have to say these things about us? What right do you have? Uh, people, People who add, religious people who add to Christ usually get at least inwardly angry if you tell them you can add nothing to Jesus Christ. What about what I am doing? And so you can almost sense an angry voice behind him saying, what right do you have? And his answer is, I once sat where you sit. I once believed what you believed. And not only so, if it's a business of my father is stronger than your father, you will not find anyone in my generation who could hold a candle to what I was. And it's this that kind of draws out of him this wonderful personal 
testimony. And you catch this sense that the Apostle Paul seemed to realize that of, of all the apostles, he could see that he was the one whom God had shaped providentially to deal with this issue. Yes, the other apostles would have to deal with it, um, but none of them could deal with it in quite the way God had shaped him to deal with it. And so, he gives us this personal testimony. Um, I think he almost invites us here to interview him, and so that's what I want to do, um, to look at what Paul says here, and to ask him a few fairly obvious questions. The first is this, so what were you like then? What were you like? Second, if that's what you were like, what happened to you that brought you to faith in Christ? Third, what then did you find in Christ that brought you this satisfaction? And fourth, which I think we'll have to leave till next week, you may be thankful. What difference did this make to your life? They're pretty basic questions, aren't you? What were you like, Paul? before you became a Christian? What happened to you to bring you to Christ? What did you find in Christ that brought you this satisfaction? And for next week, God willing, what difference did this make to your life? Well, first of all, what was Paul like by nature? Well, he tells us in verse 4, doesn't he, if they felt they had something to boast in, in confidence in the flesh, he had more and he rehearses, he, I think he tells us seven things that made him an outstanding example of what they were. And he knew that even if they could tick some of these boxes, they would be incapable of ticking all of the boxes. And he says, when I met Jesus Christ… I realized that all these things needed to be transferred from my prophet calling into my loss experience. And indeed, he goes so far as to use a fairly scatological term here. He says, I now see that these things were done by comparison with what I found in Jesus Christ. And essentially, what he says is this, first of all, I had an impeccable pedigree. Notice the words he uses, I was circumcised on the eighth day. When I talk about circumcision, I was circumcised on exactly the right day according to the law. I belonged to the people of Israel. Not only so, I belonged to the tribe of Benjamin from which the first king had been selected, and perhaps that was the reason why Paul had been called Saul. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, though he had been brought up earlier on in his life in Tarsus, he had been, he had been brought up in a pure Gallic-speaking home, as it were. He might speak Greek outside the home, inside the home. Ma and Pa never allowed a word of Greek to be spoken. You live in my house, you speak Hebrew. He was the real deal. He was a thoroughbred. 
And then not only did he have an impeccable pedigree, he had an extraordinary personal commitment. And he lists that, as to the law, a Pharisee. And you remember that Paul actually says in the Acts of the Apostles, I deliberately became a Pharisee because that was the strictest sect of the Jewish people. That was the strictest you know, there were denominations in Judaism. That was the strictest denomination. That's an interesting thing to say because part of the attraction of this false teaching was it seemed so spiritual. In some ways, it seemed to appeal to the Bible, circumcisions in the Bible. And the other thing that would attract some people was it was so strict. It involved a kind of personal violence of circumcision. And you can understand there were earnest Christians who had that teaching, and what they had was, I'm not really consecrated enough. That's happened all the way through church history. And Paul is saying, if you're talking about strictness, then I chose the strictest denomination in our religion. My personal commitment was so radical. And as to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. And then as to moral attainment, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, personally, I don't think that means Paul is saying, I was absolutely sinless. I think what it means is that he was a kind of later version of the rich young ruler. In fact, when I was a teenager, there were people who taught me that the rich young ruler in the Gospels and Saul of Tarsus were one and the same person, because both of them were convinced, as many religious people are, that they have almost certainly done enough. Now, we're living in a different day from the day I was a teenager. When I was a young Christian teenager, if you asked somebody in any of the mainstream denominations in Scotland, are you going to heaven? Ninety times out of a hundred, at least, they would say, I'm hoping I've done enough. Or if you press them, no, I'm really, I'm pretty sure I've done enough. I know I'm not sinless, but I've done enough. I'm righteous. I'm okay. That was where the rich young ruler was, even although he knew there was, there was something missing. I've kept all these laws from my youth upwards, he says to Jesus, but I've come to you because I want you to tell me what in addition I must do to inherit eternal life. And I think that's where Saul of Tarsus was. That's, that's where most of us actually are by nature. I mean, they say that in the United States of America, 90% of people think they're better than average car drivers. You know, I mean, I suppose somehow or another that may be possible, but it sounds a bit suspicious. And that's how most people think. I know I'm not perfect. And this is the position that Paul was in. In his own eyes, he had achieved a level of moral attainment that was superb. 
And in a sense, all of that can just kind of flow on, but there's a jarring note, isn't there, just towards the end, where he says this, and this is the jarring note, as to zeal. You talk about zeal, listen to this, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So, impeccable pedigree, personal commitment, moral attainment. But the really important thing, I think, here to notice, the loose thread in the tapestry of Paul's life that uh, the gospel, I think, began to pull on was this jarring note, I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. So ferocious was my zeal. So ferocious was his zeal, we read in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, that he had both men and women in his sights who professed the Christian faith and was, if you will allow the language, he was in a sense literally hell-bent on destroying them. When the Apostle Paul says that he saw himself as the chief of sinners… Now, I've heard sermons encouraging me to think that way about myself. If you really grow spiritually, you end up thinking you are the chief of sinners. That may be true, but Paul believed that about himself, I think, quite literally. Because there was no one quite like him in the first half of the first century, A.D., who had it in the crosshairs of his attack to absolutely destroy the Christian church. And yet, I think it's that statement, that statement that stands out, that grates, that, that seems to be so contrary to a man who was pursuing righteousness. I think it's that that helps us to answer the second question I want to ask Paul, and that is, what happened to you, Paul, to bring you to Christ? You clearly went through this 180-degree transformation, zeal to destroy the church, to this passion to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what happened to make the difference? And I suppose, I suppose it would be almost natural to say, well, it, you know, have you not read the Acts of the Apostles? It was the Damascus Road that made the difference. I was converted on the Damascus Road. Now, bear with me for a moment. Um, I have no doubt that what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road was a radical point in his spiritual experience. I am not so sure that Saul of Tarsus had a Damascus Road conversion. Now, some people say this, you know, some of us brought up in Christian homes, spiritually growing slowly. Others of us had dramatic experiences, and we sometimes say, I had a Damascus Road conversion. I'm not so sure that that actually was how Paul would have described his conversion. It was an important moment. But I think as is true of all who come to faith in Jesus Christ, if they 
analyze their personal pilgrimage. It wasn't just such a sudden moment. After all, who knows how many Christian believers Saul of Tarsus had already met? It wasn't as though this was his first encounter with Christ. He had encountered Christ in his disciples in other ways earlier on. And I think scattered throughout the New Testament, we actually find a number of clues as to why it was that what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road was actually the climax of something that God had been doing in his life. Yes, he met Christ in a dramatic way, but it was a climactic way and not an initial way. Now, why do I say that? Um, you can just listen if you want to. If you want to turn up the verses, um, then keep your fingers moving. Here's, here's the testimony we find in the rest of the New Testament. Number one, in Galatians 1, verses 13 to 16, the Apostle Paul says, when, when I was a youngster, there was nobody in my generation who could hold a candle to me in terms of spirituality. I was, although he didn't speak Italian, numero uno. He had outrun everybody, and he, he makes it quite clear. That was his self-consciousness. He was at the top of the spiritual tree. But then he tells us something very interesting in that connection. Um, he tells us he was a Pharisee. And if we were to say, well, why did, why did Saul of Tarsus persecute the church? I think our instinctive response was he was a Pharisee. Not the right answer. How do I know? Nicodemus was a Pharisee and didn't persecute the church. Almost certainly Joseph of Arimathea, who buried the body of Jesus, was also a Pharisee, didn't persecute the church. The really staggering thing is that Paul, like most students, was actually quietly proud of the theological professor he had studied under. Never tell him to his face, but he would be quietly proud of the fact that he had studied under, do you remember who his professor was? A man called Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the man who, when people wanted to destroy the church, held up his hand and said, wait a minute, if this is of God, it will prosper. If it's not of God, then it will die. Let's not persecute the church. So, Saul of Tarsus was one of those slightly irritating students who was absolutely determined to go way beyond his professor. And that, I think, alerts us to the fact that to say, well, Saul wanted to destroy the church because he was a Pharisee cannot be the right answer. We've got three Pharisees whose names we know, and none of them wanted to persecute the church. And that raises the question for us, what was different then about Saul of Tarsus? 
And that's where I think, again, the Acts of the Apostles comes in. If you can bear in mind what he said in Galatians 1, I I was numero uno. And then what we begin to read in Acts chapter 6, when the early church chose seven men to deal with a problem, they were men full of the Holy Spirit. And one of them was a young man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was not only full of the Holy Spirit, but Stephen had just an unusual ability to expound the Word of God. And then something very interesting happens in the Acts of the Apostles. We're told in the Acts of the Apostles, this is chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then Now, listen really carefully to this, because there's a question at the end. Then, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, When you see something in a historical narrative in the New Testament that seems completely irrelevant, you need to stop and ask, why is this there? And the reason this is there is because this was a synagogue apparently made up of a little group of ethnicities. So, my experience is mainly with Koreans. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Kim send their daughter to Philadelphia uh, to study, and the last word that Mrs. Kim says to her daughter is, when you get to Philadelphia, make sure you go to the Korean church. You'll find it in such and such a street. That's where you'll be welcomed. It's actually why there are Scots churches all over Europe when you get to Amsterdam, go to the Scots church. They'll make you welcome there. So, so this was a, a kind of ethnic group. But the interesting thing is, this is the synagogue where the people from Cilicia gathered. And my geography is terrible, but I do know this. Tarsus is in Cilicia. And although it's not demonstrable scientifically, I think it could maybe hold up in a court of law that this is almost certainly the synagogue that Ma and Pa, Saul of Tarsus, said to the young teenager Saul, when you get to Jerusalem, go to the synagogue of the Cilicians. And fascinatingly, that was where there was the outburst. That was the epicenter of the plan to destroy Stephen. And Saul of Tarsus was right there in with the mix in the plan to destroy Stephen. But he's apparently the only member of the synagogue who goes wild afterwards to destroy the Christian church. Why? I think because almost certainly for the first time in his life in Stephen, Saul of Tarsus saw someone who had what he lacked, 
and who was head and shoulders above him in his understanding of Scripture, in the grace of his life, in the power of his preaching, and in what God did through him. And I think, therefore, it's by no means accidental that when all of this is through, that in a kind of gigantic picture of what happens to many people in a miniature way, when you see this in a Christian, you've basically got two choices. You either join them in faith in Christ, or you find some way, however sophisticated, to destroy them, to demean them, to rubbish their faith, to minimize their influence. And one last passage in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, Paul says what I think is a very interesting thing about what actually awakened him spiritually. He says in Romans 7, the law came. He doesn't mean the law came at Sinai. He means somehow or another the law penetrated his conscience. And it's very interesting that he actually specifies which particular commandment penetrated his conscience. It was, thou shalt not covet. Now, sometimes people say, well, the reason for that is is that's the commandment that's inward. Really? So, what happened to the first nine? Are they all just about outward? No, I think the reason that was the commandment that penetrated Saul of Tarsus was exactly the same reason it was the commandment that penetrated the rich young ruler. I know I'm not perfect, but since childhood I've been taught to keep the commandments, and I've kept them. What extra do I need to do? And Jesus' answer, what about the tenth commandment? Go and sell all you have. If you don't covet, give it all away. And it seems to me for the first time in his life, Saul of Tarsus met someone whose life, whose grace, whose Christ-likeness, and Luke in the Acts of the Apostles portrays him in a very Christ-like way, faced Paul with a decision. Now, I'm not saying he was profoundly conscious of this, but he either had to seek more, seek out Stephen. What's the secret, Stephen? What has made you like this? Help me. Or to destroy him. And he chose the latter. And having chosen the latter, he was determined to do even more. In a way, there was something very typical about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But it was like on a huge screen. And one of the reasons I think it was on a huge screen was that when he gave this testimony in Philippians chapter 3, the Philippians could see through this false teaching that was so reminiscent of what Saul of Tarsus had once been. And since they knew Saul of Tarsus, they knew, as Saul of Tarsus must have glimpsed in Stephen, that this was the real thing. Now, that leads us to the third question very quickly. 
We'll come back to Philippians 3, God willing, next week. So, what did Paul find in Christ? He found in Christ what he had sought in himself but never found. He says, I found in Christ a righteousness that comes from God. And so, I no longer… Think of, think of the release of the terrible burden on his life. I no longer sought to establish my own righteousness, because in Jesus Christ, I found all the righteousness I need. He wasn't the last, was he? Actually, he wasn't the last to have the same kind of experience that isn't always true of every Christian, but is sometimes true of some people. This absolute determination to gain your own righteousness. Like a Martin Luther, who outran every monk in his monastery in discipline, in fasting, in praying, in studying the Bible, but he hated that word of Paul's, the righteousness of God, until he discovered that that was not a righteousness that he could attain. It was a righteousness that God gave him. Or John Bunyan, or the Wesley brothers, Anglican ministers. I mean, outrunning all of their contemporary young Anglicans in their discipline, in their good deeds, finding it did not lead to righteousness. And both Charles and John, within a few days of each other, finding a righteousness in Jesus Christ. the light that broke into the cell, the breaking of the chains, the coming to Christ. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. He discovered as a top lady teaches us to sing, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. And then these words that sometimes overwhelm me, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And Paul discovered that all his righteousness was, it was flimsy. And was a student with a friend going into an old church on the north coast of Scotland that was probably never used, and we, we were only 20, so we were mischievous. We went in. We went into the vestry. I opened a cupboard door in the vestry, and whoever had been the minister 30 years, 40 years before it, left his Geneva gown hanging in the cupboard. And I said to my friend, look, he's left his gown, and instinctively reached out and touched it and it just fell on the floor. The moths had eaten it. That's what Paul is saying. That's what our righteousness is. Only in Jesus Christ is there a righteousness that will last. And the great thing, my friends, is this. This is 
surely one of the most wonderful things that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you can be the newest, youngest Christian here, or you can be the oldest, most mature Christian here. But in Jesus Christ, you have exactly the same righteousness. That elderly saint you admire is no more righteous in Christ than you are. That young believer that you have been happy to welcome, elderly saint, is no less righteous in Christ than you are. Because it's on a life we did not live and by a death that we do not die that we stake our whole eternity. I hope you know that. It's still all too possible to be thinking, I hope I've done enough. Or to make the mistake of thinking, I'm fairly sure I've done enough. But we can never do enough. And the good news of the gospel is that like Saul of Tarsus, we do not need to once we have found Jesus Christ. And then, as I hope we will see next week, everything begins to change and everything fits into place. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. Thank You that it still has the same power that it must have had when the Philippians first heard this letter read in their little assembly and remembered the teaching that Paul had given them and the example he had set before them and the marvelous way in which he exhibited a life that was wholly pardoned, constituted righteous, set free in Jesus Christ. Make that true for us as well, that nothing may mar our joy and no false teaching mar our unity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.